Shalom. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and I'd like to welcome you to the broadcast here for B'nai Shalom Messianic Congregation. I hope that uh, you've had a good week. We're getting ready to enjoy Sabbath together. Uh, let me share just a couple of quick things with you. We have two weeks left for you to register for the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, without getting charged a late fee. Uh, come August 15th, uh, if you register after that date, we're going to need to change late fee because we've got to make a series of decisions, and you may force some of the staff to have to go back and redo some of the work. That's the reason for that. So if you've been thinking about coming to Sukkot and you haven't registered yet, please get registered as soon as you can. We also are trying to encourage our brethren a little more interactivity with those that are part of the broadcast. We call it our Sabbath dinner invitation. Uh, invite your friends or family members to come to your home on Friday evening and hold a Sabbath dinner. Hold your own kiddish uh, or join us in our kiddish. Uh, show a little hospitality, the works of Abraham, to your friends and family. And then after your dinner, join us for the broadcast, and then you can see the tour, tour teaching for that particular Sabbath. Uh, it's just a way to expand the faith and to expand additional, uh, additional brethren in. All of you have an impact. There's a whole world associated with you and your friends. Reach out to them and invite them to come and join us for Sabbath. All right? Without any further ado, let's go to Kiddush. We'll get our Sabbath underway. Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadunai Eloheinu melech haolam Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. 
Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and bless you and thank you for the wonderful wives that you've given to us in our homes. Father, I thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she takes care of our children, as she teaches and educates them, and as she takes care of the home and me. Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart, and I pray that you would pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. I love her and thank you for the unmerited favor and grace that you have given me, Lord, through her. So I thank you, Lord, on this Shabbat, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Bahu et Adonai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai hamvorach le'olam vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha, Ba'elim Adonai. Micha Mocha, Nedahar Ba'chudesh. Nohorat Echilot. Oh, Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Veshamuv Bene Israel et Hashabat, La Sot et Hashabat, Ladrotam, Berit Olam, Bene Ovayom, Bene Israel, Othit Lerlam, Keshashet Yamim, Asadonai, et Hashmaim, Vet Haaret, Vayom Hashavi, Shabbat, Vainafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha, v'heyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha hayom alevavcha, v'shinantam lavenecha, V'depardabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'leftecha, v'derech u'shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kheshatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu la'totafot b'inenecha, u'chetatam ha'mazuzot b'techa, uv'sharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to praise your name, for you are holy, Father. We invite you to come and join us in our midst, Father, as we lift your name high.
Turn your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 11. Hold your finger at verse 26. 
where our portion of Re'eh will begin for this week. As you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachabanu Mikol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Etorato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week, as I said, is called Re'eh, which comes from the first verse, uh, chapter 26, uh, or verse 26 of chapter 11, where it says, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods, which you have not known. That word behold in verse 26 sometimes is translated as see. So our Torah portion, Re'eh, means see. See with your eyes. See the blessing and the curse which I lay before you. We're in the portion of Deuteronomy where, again, this is the book of the law that Moses has written. That Moses is now speaking to that generation who's going to cross over the Jordan and go into the promised land. Many of the people hearing these words were not there and did not hear the voice of God from Mount Sinai. Many of them were born in the wilderness. And God is again confirming his covenant with that next generation through Moses and through these words. We've been going through, and I I described earlier um, a couple of weeks ago, that the entire book of Deuteronomy is a confirmation of a covenant. We have a historical prologue that describes how we got to the point where we are. It's like a contract. It also describes who the covenant is between. It's between God and it's between the children of Israel. And then we have blessings and curses. We have stipulations and guidelines for what that covenant includes. It's like a big, giant contract between God and the children of Israel and all of their descendants after them. That's what we're dealing with here. And we're in the middle of this passage where we're talking about, and I said at the end of last week, talking about how we must obey the commandments of God. Not just obey, but in the Hebrew, whenever you see that word obey, it means shema. It means hear. Hear, O Israel. And so even when we do the watchword of our faith, the shema, each and every week, it's not just hearing with our ears that we should then listen to and then we've retained the words that God has spoken to us. No, we are to hear with the intent to act, the intent to follow and do what we have heard. That's truly what it means to hear, O Israel, to Shema. And so when it says here right at the beginning of our Torah portion here where it says blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, if you hear them, if you follow the Shema, if you hear these words and then act and do them, then this is when you will receive the blessing. That's what we're focusing on. And we know and we've said, said before, faith comes by hearing. It's described in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing, not by sight but by hearing the words and the commandments of God. So why do we have this Torah portion here called Re'eh? Why are we commanded to behold, to see that we are setting a blessing and a curse? I believe this is, in God's infinite wisdom, He knows, we have multiple senses in which we experience the world. We have sight, we have ears, we have smell, we have taste, we have touch. We have all of these these senses in which that's how we experience the world. And the biggest, strongest, most used 
sense that we use is our eyes. We're very we're visually driven by everything that we do, everything that we see. We follow after things. When you wake up in the morning, basically the first sense that you hear, well, except if your alarm clock's going off, the first sense you hear is your ears and something wakes you up. But then when you wake up, it's like that's actually something you usually don't want to hear is the alarm clock. The first time you ever feel like you're actually awake, that's when you open your eyes and then you start to observe the world around you for whatever day you find yourself in. Our eyes are the most, we would describe our eyes to be the most predominant sense that we use. If you were to pick any sense that you would go and live your life without, our eyes would probably be the last one that you would sacrifice to live the rest of your life. You wouldn't want to lose your eyesight. And that's what we do in our human nature, that our eyes are that important to us. Well, the problem is, is that our eyes can be a snare to us. Our eyes can be deceiving. These are just, these are proverb, these are secular proverbs that you've probably heard in your life. Your eyes can be deceiving. Well, there, it, that's kind of a, an abbreviated version of what is in our Proverbs of our Scripture. So many times it talks about how the eyes lead us astray. And when we're being warned when we go into the, the uh, promised land here to the children of Israel, don't follow after the idols and the things that you see. Don't covet the gold that is in the high places of all of this pagan worship. Don't, don't follow after your eyes, but listen to the words that God is saying to you. Don't do those things. Faith comes by hearing. However, God knows this. God's smart. God made us the way that we are. We still sometimes need something visual to remind us of those words, to remind us of those covenant. That's why we have the commandment in Numbers chapter 15. We have the commandment for the zitziot, where it says it's something for our eyes to see that when we look upon it, we remember the commandments of God. So God knows this. God gives us some some tips and tricks and hints for us to remember the words of the covenant because he does give us signs to see, signs and wonders to observe. And this is the story that goes in here. He see, I set before you the blessing and the curse. We then have this description coming in for the children of Israel. This is what they're to do. Verse 29. Now when it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, you shall put a blessing on Mount Gerizim and a curse upon Mount Ebal. And they are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal by the oak trees of Moreh? For you will cross over the Jordan. You will go in and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you and you will possess it and dwell in it. You shall be careful to observe all the statutes and the judgments which I set before you today. Okay, what is this business? This is the first time that this has been mentioned here. We're going to go to a couple of mountains that are in the promised land, across the Jordan. He gives us exact detail of where these, where these mountains are. We have this mountain called Gerizim. We have this mountain called Ebal. We're to put a blessing on Gerizim and a curse upon Ebal. In fact, there's only four times in all of Scripture that these, are, these names are actually given. It's given here in, in Deuteronomy twice, where it's then described again later in Deuteronomy for them to actually, what they're going to do when they go there. And it's described in Joshua when they actually go to that place, and they do exactly what God commanded them to do, put this blessing on there. They'll also write down the words of this covenant upon whitewashed stones, and those will be at that place, and that'll be a, a reminder to the children of Israel, a monument, if you will, of the covenant that God made with them. They're to write that down. Now, going back to the entire idea and narrative of Deuteronomy, that it is a covenant, a contract. Stipulations that are in all the covenants. One, you, do, you set up some sort of monument to the covenant that is being made. 
You said sometimes there's a planting of a tree that would be the establishment of a covenant that when you're talking about just the ancient Near East custom of forming covenants. All kinds of different procedures that would go, that would happen, that whenever different procedures take place within a covenant, it strengthens the bond of the covenant. From the signing of a contract to sometimes there's the exchange of names to the exchange of gifts. That they would eat a covenant meal. There would be the planting of a tree or the setting up of a monument. All of these things are all possible scenarios and additions to any covenant agreement that is made. If we look at covenant agreements, the first one we think of is a marriage. There's a lot of different things that happen in a marriage. From the signing of a contract to the exchange of names to where the wife actually takes the name of the husband. There's a covenant meal that takes place, usually at the reception. There's an exchange of gifts. There's rings. There's the consummation of the covenant that is very much a part of marriage. Sometimes there's even a, sometimes a tree is planted even for some people or there's a salt covenant being done or a unity candle. All of these ceremonies all contribute to what a covenant is. And marriage covenant is probably the one that has some of the greatest amount of ceremony to it that causes that covenant to be as strong as it is. You might do the same thing in a business agreement. You sign a contract, but then you also have a meal with the person to seal the deal, if you will. Some people will often say that, and it's be like, oh, hey, you know, and it's like, here, I'll, I'll give you a, a gift. We'll exchange the pens that we use to sign the contract. All of those different ceremonies contribute to the strength of a covenant. So, when the children of Israel are commanded to go into the land, go to these two mountains, they're commanded to write the words of the covenant upon this stone, this is another ceremony that confirms the strength of the covenant between God and the children of Israel. That's what the purpose of it is. And so this, when they set this up, this is the monument to the covenant that is being made. So they were to go, go to this place and see, and they're almost walking out exactly the way our Torah portion began. He says, all right, we're going to all come to this place. Behold, see, I set before you blessing. And we have this giant mountain over here that we're going to bless called Gerizim. And then I set before you curse. We have this giant mountain over here called Ebal. And he's creating the visual for the children of Israel to confirm the covenant. Because people, we sometimes need that. We need the visual confirmation of the covenant. Some of us are visual learners. Some of us are, are learned by hearing. Some of us learn by reading. God kind of covers all his bases for whoever might be a part of his covenant. If you're a visual learner, he gives you an example. And he gives you commandments and examples for you to visually learn. If you learn by hearing, great. When these words are read to you, then you would learn the covenant that God has made. If you learn by reading, we have in our modern day, at least good for us, we have books to read that we can read the words of this covenant. So whatever kind of learner you are, you have an opportunity to participate in this covenant. What an amazing blessing that is. That was the purpose of this whole deal with Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. That's why it was done. That's, at least that's my opinion on how, why I believe that to be the case. Now, we do have, there's a couple of issues here, that we have the Samaritans, who are a group of, a sect of Judaism that had formed in the, when the children of Israel came into the land, to the land of Canaan, into the promised land. There is a sect of Judaism that believes that Mount Gerizim is the place in the mountain where all of the worship of God should be. 
that it's like, well, as we've gone through, and Jerusalem would later become the capital of Israel, and we're going to talk a lot about Jerusalem in this Torah portion, that that is the place in which God will put his name, and that's where we are to bring all of our offerings, our burnt offerings, and that is where the worship of the Lord should be. The Samaritans instead believed that Mount Gerizim, because of this blessing, because of this place where they were brought, that that is where they, the worship of God should be. Like I said, my opinion is, is that Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal were a place to confirm the covenant, to set up a monument, and that it was to be a visual aid for us to remember the covenant. Not really much more after that. Like I said, Mount Gerizim is mentioned only four times in all of Scripture. What is mentioned more in Scripture is Jerusalem, is a place where God has called for His name to be worshipped. So we have to remember, we have to um, keep in mind and keep in order, why is God doing all of these things? As we go into chapter 12 of the book of Deuteronomy, this is where God gives the prescribed place of worship. Let me start with this preamble here, which is a reiteration of things that have already been spoken to us and things for the children of Israel to keep in mind. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you are careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving to you to possess. All the days that you live on earth, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, under every green tree, and you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down their carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. We've already been describing the last couple of passages in Deuteronomy that they're to break down, tear down, go and dispossess this land. That's the opposite of taking possession. It's not the opposite. It's a different way of describing children of Israel. What you want to do is you're going to go in, you're going to possess this land. But what you first must do is dispossess those that are there. The gods, the temples, the high places, everything that those people did there, remove it. God does not want that anywhere near his land where you are to dwell. He kind of, he addresses this as well. At the end of chapter 12, and he kind of bookends this entire chapter 12 with this one here. Let me just fast forward a little bit. Verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them to, and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them, after they are destroyed from before you, that you don't inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to nor take away from it. That's the end of Deuteronomy chapter 12. So here we have bookended this reiteration of destroying utterly destroying the inhabitants of the land and tearing down their high places from every hill, from every mountain, from under every green tree, sometimes even tearing down the trees, the Asherim that they would worship to God with and they would use trees to worship the God. They're gods. That's one of the things, that's why we run into the issue in the Messianic movement today where we have the conflict and the issue with Christmas. Isn't it Christmas? We have Christmas trees and then we look at, we read the scriptures and we see the parallel in, especially in Jeremiah 10, where it talks about that these were trees of praise that people would bring in a tree, they would take a tree, they would set it up, and they would worship a tree. 
and that would be an idol. Now, people who keep Christmas, they say the tree doesn't mean that to them. However, they kind of do the same thing as others used to do with the trees. Almost like, and how did we get all this idea? Well, in my mind, it's very easy. You go back and you look, hey, how did other people serve other gods? Oh, they took a tree. One one guy one time took a tree. He decorated it with gold and silver, and then he worshipped it like an idol. And through the telephone game, through centuries of, of traditions and customs, that is how I believe we ended up with Christmas trees today. Can I necessarily prove that right now in the short time that I have to teach? No, but it's not hard to imagine that's how we ended up with the traditions today. That somebody somewhere got the idea from somewhere else. Where did it come from? Probably from Asherim and Trees of Praise where people would worship trees. It's like I don't bow down to my Christmas tree, except when you go to get the presents out from under it. You kind of have to do that. And then you don't really, you decorate it and you make it gold and silver and put a star on top or whatever. It looks like an idol. That's what it is. So when we counsel with brethren and we talk about families who are newly messianic and they're like, oh man, how do I keep Christmas with this thing? One of the counsels that we give to people is still enjoy the time with your family. Just don't do the tree. Keep the tree and the other traditions. Cease from doing those we're not against the time with family. We're not against sharing a meal. We're not against all of those things. And so many people cut off Christmas altogether and henceforth cut off their family members when they become newly messianic. And it's like everybody has to make a decision for their own house in how they're going to learn and start to follow the commandments of God because God's pretty clear. Don't do as other nations did. Don't worship as other gods like, and don't even try to worship God like other nations have worshiped their gods. We're trying to clean that up. And a lot of people take those words to heart. And that's the, that's the conviction that they have after hearing the words of God. What we counsel with is, you know what? You do it in a way to where you can still be a testimony to your family. That you might still hold what you might call Christmas, but get rid of the tree. And then if somebody asks, hey, why didn't you guys set up a tree? Well, you know what? This is kind of what I learned and this is what I feel. And it's a moment for you to witness to your family and to share those things rather than cutting them off altogether. So that's a piece of counsel which we have given some people sometimes depending on their circumstance. And others just have to make you you have to make the decision when it comes to anything that looks like worship of another God, because the scripture is clear. That we are not to do those things. We are not to worship God with such things, in such ways, in any way like that. We're to tear them down. We're not to, our eyes shouldn't like, oh man, I really love how Christmas trees look. Our eyes should not do that. We have to listen to the words of God. And so as we're going through our, our lives and learning how to be better followers and doers of Torah, that's one of the things we have to deal with. Now, the rest of chapter 12, bookended by those, that uh, instruction, talks about the offerings that, were, that the children of Israel were to give to the Lord. Yet, when they go into the land, what they're going to do is this. There's going to be a place that God will put His name, that will make His name abide. And it says, let's start here at verse 5, for instance. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes, to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and your flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all which the Lord has put in your hand, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do... 
as all we are doing here, as all we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, for as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance of the Lord which he has given you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land with the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, he gives you rest from all of your enemies round about so that you will dwell in safety. Then there, he w- then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and so forth, and all the things that he commands to bring. Again, So he says this, you're going to go into the land, you're going to dispossess all these people, you're going to get rid of all these enemies, you can't just do what is right in your own eyes, as maybe we've done and gotten away with here in the wilderness. What you are then going to do is when he causes you to dwell safely and securely with peace from all the enemies around you, then he will reveal the place. This kind of puts the, the, the nail in the, in the argument for the Samaritans who would say Mount Gerizim is the place where they are to worship when it says, however, when they went to Mount Gerizim and did that, they hadn't dispossessed all the enemies of the land of Canaan. It says clearly, after they've done that, then the Lord will reveal his place. He didn't reveal his place which, uh, one chapter earlier called Mount Gerizim. He will reveal his place. Now, and what we believe the fulfillment of all of this was all done through King David and through his son Solomon who built the temple, that it was when in Jerusalem, the central, almost in the center of the land of Canaan, is the place where God chooses. And this is where it begins, all the instruction, especially from Judaism, of what we are to do, that these blessings are only, and these offerings, were only to be given at the altar, at the temple in Jerusalem. They're not to do it any other place, but where God chooses to put his name. So that is what we believe when we read this. And that, um, that phrase, in the place where the Lord chooses, in the place where the Lord chooses to place his name, to put his name. That's reiterated several times over throughout our entire Torah portion, clearly establishing, we will show you this place. God will reveal this place. We don't know where it is at this point in time, but it will be revealed. It gives even more detail. It's a very detailed chapter that it says, look, even if you are in the field, if you're in your, your cities, your walled cities, wherever you go to settle, if you crave meat, if you'd like to eat a steak dinner, if you'd like to eat of the, a deer of the field or something like that, it describes clearly, you can go and do that. Make sure that you are not doing it so that you feel like you're making an offering to God because those offerings are only to go to the place that the Lord chooses. So we have that stipulation here. This is when it does kind of shift the idea that back in the wilderness, that every time that an animal was sacrificed, they would take it to the, to the tabernacle. It would be sacrificed. It would be made an offering to the Lord. Lots of peace offerings. And that was when they would eat a feast that would contain meat in it. They would do that. The stipulation is now given that when they wish to do that, now make sure you, you're welcome to do so. Make sure you're not trying to make an offering to God in that process. And again, this is, goes to counsel with a lot of brethren in the Messianic movement, where somebody says, hey, we want to invite you out for a feast. We're going to do Passover or we're going to do a goat roast for tabernacles this year. And we've gone to our place uh, here. We got a piece of property out in Texas and we've set up an altar and we're going to do the Passover sacrifice to God over here in this altar. And we're going to have a Passover meal and a feast in that way. And we've said, my father said many times over, we're like, we are not going to participate in that. We believe that is specifically what Deuteronomy chapter 12 was saying, telling us not to do. 
We are not to do a burnt offering or a peace offering or any other offering that was meant to go into the tabernacle. We're not going to do that in our place, in our walled cities, or wherever we might be. We're told not to do that. You're welcome to slaughter a goat. You're welcome to, to slaughter a lamb and have a meal to eat. But don't consider it to be that sacrifice that God prescribed, especially in Leviticus. So we have all the instructions from Leviticus on how to bring these offerings and how to appropriately worship the Lord. Deuteronomy kind of puts a capstone on all of that when Moses is writing all these words down. And he's saying this, that it's like, make sure that only happens in the place and in the prescribed way that God commanded us to do so. So, and it also says this, it reiterates, look, if you are going to eat meat elsewhere, you're welcome to do so. Don't call it a sacrifice. And also, make sure you don't eat the blood. The life is in the blood. That doesn't, not allowed for you to do that at, at all. You're to pour that out back onto the earth. Give that part back to the Lord. That's the Lord's portion of every animal. The life is in the blood. The soul is in the blood. That belongs to God. So we have these stipulations that are given to the children of Israel. As they go, as we get ready to go into the land, this is what is going to happen to you. Be careful of these things. Be careful of false gods. Be careful of your stomach causing you to get hungry and lead you astray to think that you're going to sacrifice an animal and then you're going to worship the Lord that way. No, you're welcome to eat, but you will worship the Lord in the way that God has described. If we go into verse thir- or chapter 13... This is a very fascinating chapter that's quoted many times over that is kind of a it's kind of a touchy subject for those that have family members that might disagree with what you believe. It talks about this. It says, if one rises among you, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams does signs and wonders, signs come true. But then they tell you to go after other gods, then they are a false prophet. They are somebody who is there to lead you astray, not commanded by the Lord. And the Lord commands you to put those people to death. It goes on into into verse 6 where it says, If your brother, your son of your mother or your daughter, your wife or a friend or all of these things secretly try to entice you to follow after other gods, that you are to even put them to death, your own family members. Now, if you sit here and you might think, sit back and be like, all right, does every one of my family members believe like I do? Have they ever tried to entice me to believe in something else, to do something else that is contrary to the Scripture? If I'm going to follow the Scripture to a T, am I supposed to kill them? Now, I do not believe, and that is not the counsel that's coming from this pulpit, and that's not what anybody's going to be telling you in this day and age to say, well, you've got to follow the letter to the T, and so you better get your stones out. No, we're we're not going to be doing that. So there's a great balance needed as to what is the Lord trying to command us to do. And we've got to remember the root of the instruction. The root of it is to not be led astray, to continue to follow what God has told us to do. We have to do that work. Even if there's all kinds of other things that are enticing, do signs and wonders, something our eyes are, are tickled with what somebody might do or say or, or, or anything like that. We need to make sure that our focus remains on the commandments that God has given to us. This is also, this passage right here, first couple of verses, first five verses of chapter 13, is one of the main reasons why Judaism does not believe in Yeshua of Nazareth to be the Messiah. And it says this, if I read all of these verses, it says, you know, if anybody leads you to follow after other gods, say, let us serve them. And you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you 
to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey Shema, His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God. You, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, you shall put away the evil from your midst. Now, I said that this is the reason why Judaism doesn't believe in Yeshua of Nazareth. Let me state for the record, I don't believe Yeshua came to lead us astray from the teachings of Moses. He said so himself. He did not come to alter the customs of Moses or to do away with the law. That's not what his intent was. That's not what he did. And if you read truly what he said and what his testimony was, he fulfilled the law, the Torah, and the commandments, and he never broke the commandments of the Torah, nor did he ever tell anybody to lead them astray, to move away from the commandments and the Torah and the law given by God to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and through Moses. He did not do that. Now, the problem is, is that followers of Yeshua, teachers of Jesus, have portrayed, and what they have said that Yeshua did, is that he did come to do away with those things. So, the followers of Yeshua, if they have gone, and in modern day Christianity has gone and spoken words and says, Yeshua, Jesus came, He came to teach us and He gave us new commandments, new instructions, and that He has freed us from the laws of Torah and told us to do this, then that is what we shall do. And anyone who truly firmly believes in the commandments of Torah and believes in Deuteronomy chapter 13 would hear that and say, that is a false teaching. That is a teaching that is attempting to lead me astray from what I have been told and commanded to do. And that's what has happened whenever there's been missionaries and Christians who've gone to share the gospel with a devout Jew who's well aware of what the scripture says. And they say, hey, he's freed us from this. We don't have to do this. All we have to do is these two new commandments. A well-learned Jew will look at that and just be like, mm-hmm, no. Because I'm instructed to remove the evil from my midst. And I'm even going to sometimes, some Jews have made it their life goal and passion and ministry to remove those people and missionaries from trying to convert Jews to Christianity. May I submit that the message being shared is what was lost in translation and what is false. Not that Yeshua came to do away with those things, but the way that the followers of Jesus portray him to be is the reasons why Judaism doesn't follow that. Because they have taught replacement theology and they taught basically that the Messiah came and did away with those things. If we instead came and and approached it with, look, what Yeshua did was a fulfillment of all other prophecies of Torah, a prophet like unto Moses that would come, a fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah that when he would come, that he would be a suffering servant, that he would do all of these things. If we portrayed Yeshua truly how he was and what he did, then it does not offend any commandments of Torah. If we misspeak and misrepresent who Yeshua is, somebody who is knowledgeable of the words of God and the instructions of Torah 
will call you out on your error. And that's where why we have a major disconnect. Anytime Now, there are people that have known these things that truly try to correct that error. And there are many Messianic Jews and people in the land of Israel and ministries in the land of Israel that are winning Jews over for a belief in Yeshua of Nazareth because they present it in the way that is right and appropriate and connects all of Scripture together. Instead of taking what other people do where they say the first two-thirds of the Bible, yeah, don't worry about that anymore and just focus on this. You're not going to win the day if that is your message. So, understanding that, we should be cautious if we ever have the opportunity to fill the office of evangelist or to, or to do that work anywhere in ministry, whether it's with a person on the street or whether it's teaching out of a ministry, that when we do the work to share the good news, to share the word of the Lord, make sure we're doing it right that lines up with Scripture. Make sure we are doing it so that we are not attempting to lead somebody astray or making them think we're trying to lead them astray. We have to be very cautious of that. And to do that, we have to be well aware of the words and the commandments that are in here. The end of chapter 13 ends with this. Again, continuing our theme. Because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments, which I command you today, to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. That's the goal here. That's the theme of Re'eh, which is our portion, see. See, we're talking about eyes here. Don't do what is right in your eyes. We already had that quoted in our scripture this week. And it says, do instead what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Follow Him, His words, His instructions. How does He see us? How does He observe His people? What do we do as followers of Him? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing as he's commanded it to do, because he's watching us. His eyes are moving to and fro across the earth. He's watching and seeing what will his believers and what will the people do and believe and what will, how will they follow my words? Will they hear my words and obey them? Or will they be led astray by their own eyes? That's what he's asking. That continues on with the rest of our Torah portion here. He then starts going into things that were described in Leviticus. It says, improper ways of mourning. Don't cut yourself or shave your beard. You are called to be a holy people. So then act like it. Look like it. So don't harm the edges of your beard. Don't pull out your, the, don't harm your beard as mourning for the dead. That's what the nations do. Then it talks about eating clean and unclean meat. It reiterates kosher. If you're going to do these things, if you're going to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, then you're not going to eat unclean things. That's not doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. That's what's doing wrong. Because he told us and he said so. Again, Deuteronomy is reaffirming all of these things. When you have a tithe and you're bringing your tithe before the Lord, the tithe of your grain, of your your field, and do these things, bring them to the place where God chooses. All of these things are to be followed as God intended it to be and as he instructed it. To be, we have um, specific commandments about laws concerning the bond servants, laws concerning uh, the offering of the firstborn of your flock and your herd, and also our portion continues on and finishes with most of chapter 16, talking about the pilgrimage feasts, where after God has established Jerusalem, that's the place where we're going to go three times a year for the feast of Passover, the feast of weeks, the feast of tabernacles, and that is where we're going to celebrate all of those things. This Torah portion is all about the establishment of Jerusalem for us to go and worship the king and doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. I want to conclude with this. In the middle of chapter 15, at verse 7, there's this other thing that is always at the very heart of Torah, 
This is what the purpose of all of these things at the heart of Torah is. Let me read this. Verse 7 of chapter 15. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be be a wicked thought in your heart saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand and your eye and your evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cries out to the Lord against you and it becomes a sin among you. You shall surely give to him for your heart... And your heart should be not should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all of your works, in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother and your poor and your needy in your land. The poor will always be with us. And at the very heart of all of these things, He has confirmed this covenant. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. I brought you out. As crazy of an idea as it was, I brought about just slaves out of a land, pulled them out, and I'm going to make them a kingdom of priests, and they're going to be a beacon for all of the world to see. If you were going to do that, you probably shouldn't start with a kingdom of slaves. But... Nevertheless, that's what God did. I'm going to bring you out. You are a stranger in that land. And at the very heart of everything that I'm going to tell you to do right in the eyes of the Lord, you're going to take care of those who are in need. The ones who were low and needy, you don't get much lower than a slave. And so then if there's somebody that is suffering in the way that a slave does, you're going to help them out. You're going to lift them up. You're going to give to them what is sufficient to their need. And it says throughout the world throughout the land, the poor will always be with you. There will always be somebody who is in need. And if you are going to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, you're going to follow His words, His commandments, and all these things. At the heart of all of it is to help those that are less fortunate than you and to open your hand wide with the blessings that God has given to you. That is the purpose of the Torah. That is at the heart of all these commandments and all of these instructions. To be a holy people before Him, doing right what is in the eyes of the Lord. And one thing that's very right in the eyes of the Lord is to lower yourself, humble yourself to the, to the role of a servant and give to those that are in need of it. I don't even care how they got to that position. I don't even care if it was of their own destruction and their own mistakes that they got to where they were. You are to lower yourself and humble yourself and to help them. And not to judge. It's like, well, you know, he's the one that lost all that money. He did that on his own accord, so I'm not going to do that because it's just, uh, that's not what the scripture says. It does not put that stipulation on here. So if we are going to follow the covenant, where all these guidelines and these stipulations, and if you want to follow them to the letter or follow them to a T, then it does not instruct you to judge your brethren based on where they are. It says, open your hand wide and give. That's the heart of all the Torah and all of the instructions. That is not a new concept, but that is what was here from the very beginning, from the foundations of the covenant God made with the children of Israel. So, let us keep that in mind as we go about our day-to-day lives in our congregations, our churches, amongst our brethren, Lord, and to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for the teaching and instructions, the confirmation of the covenant through the book of Deuteronomy, for all of these words. May we be encouraged. May we be blessed. May we take application to these words in our lives 
to walk uprightly before you, to do what is right in your sight and not what is right in our own eyes. Father, our eyes can be deceiving. Father, cause us to not go astray. Cause us to focus our eyes on the blessing and the curse that you have put out. You've put visual cues and aids for us to follow, Lord. Let us, our eyes, be enticed by that, but let our ears be tuned to hearing your word and your instruction. May we take application in all of our lives in these ways. May we look for ways to help the poor and the needy of our brethren, Lord. And may we continue to be holy as you have called us to be and instructed us to be, Lord, as we are your people. And may we remain in that covenant with you. And let us always remember the covenant in the way you remembered the covenant, Father. That even though we have made the mistakes, even though we have broken the covenant, Father, you remember it nevertheless. So we love you and thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for the relationship that we have with you, our Heavenly Father. For all of these blessings, we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natanlanu Torah Temet V'chayalam Nata Betocheinu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles now to uh, 1 John 4, uh, beginning at verse 1. We have a few verses here. Uh, our Torah portion, Re'eh, or C, is a whole series of lessons, uh, very powerful lessons, about not to follow the way you see it. Not to render judgments uh, on the basis of what you see with your eyes. Faith does not come by sight. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And so the keys leading you to the truth is not necessarily that the way, that what you see or the way you see it, but rather that what you hear and what you hear the Lord say. That is the path to truth and wise judgments. Let me read to you this corresponding passage to the Torah teaching, beginning at verse 1, 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you shall know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Yeshua is not from God. And this is the spirit of the anti-Messiah, of which we have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I have been a, um, a Torah teacher and a teacher of the scripture for the majority of my life. And... One of the things that um, I have come to understand is to be able to take the mass of what we've been doing, what we've been learning, and to boil it down into a few sentences and try to quickly summarize it and get the essence of what we're trying to do. So let me give you 
um, the essence of what I've learned that I have been trying to do as a teacher for all these many years. What is it that I'm really trying to, uh, to, to accomplish with the brethren? I'm not here to stroke my ego. I'm not here to impress you with what I know or don't know. Instead, what I'm t- attempting to do is to uh, help you to develop the skills to discern between right and wrong. To help you to develop the skills to discern truth and error so that you can make good judgments for your own life. Um, The Lord has commanded us to learn these things, to know him and his ways, and the Lord's judgment is impeccable. And he would like us to render judgments in the same manner that he renders them, in agreement with him, not in disagreement uh, with him. Learning to obey is learning to walk with him. Disobeying is learning how to walk without him. Um, And the goal here is how to render and make good judgments. Now, going back to the Torah portion, this is, um, I always say this repeatedly, this is one of my favorite Torah portions. Um, And the reason I say that is because it's got some profound teaching elements in it. And one of the most profound that I've discovered in in studying the Torah about how people generally live, how people generally make decisions is, have you ever heard a discussion going on between a couple of folks in which somebody will explain something to it and the other guy will respond with this very common expression he'll say, well, I don't see it that way. How many of you ever, maybe, maybe you've even used that expression, maybe, you know, you know you're not supposed to be making judgments on the basis of how you see things. The Torah says don't do it. And the reason is because our sight is biased and corrupted. It's biased and corrupted because we're lured by idolatrous things. We see things, it, it, it appeals to us. We think it's more better. And we pursue those things as opposed to simply what we heard that the Lord said. And the bare truth doesn't stand up as well as to the flashy uh, thing uh, that you see before your eyes. And that's the reason why that uh, um, you go to the store and one of the things that they're going to do on all the different products is packaging is a very important part of uh, selling you things. What does it appear like afterwards? Can I tell you something kind of interesting that we learned here in the ministry? When we first started the ministry off, and I started putting out messages, and we wanted to make them available to people, and one of the first things we did, this dates me a little bit, but I'll I'll tell you what we were doing way back in earlier days. We used to have these cassette tapes. You remember the little, little, little white cassette tapes? And you'd plug it in your machine and you could listen to a teaching. Um, the only thing that we ever put on there was a little tiny label that stuck on that gave the title. And it said, this is by Monty Judah and Lion Lamb Ministries, and here's the title of the message. And we were able to produce those little tapes. We had tape decks in here and, uh, that would make copies of it. 
And we were down to the point where we could make these little tapes and we could sell them for like $5 a piece. And it would cover all our material costs, cover all the labor and so forth for it. And, um, and we could sell those very inexpensive to people. So I would go out to conferences and we'd have all these tapes stacked up, you know, and uh, that we were making available. And, and there were people buying them and, and getting them, but, you know, it wasn't uh, a whole, whole lot to it. Now, I had a fellow come join the ministry with me. I, bl- I truly believe the Lord brought him here to assist me. And he uh, came here and he was our operations manager. And he said, Monty, he said, what we got to do is we got to put these in little boxes and we need to p- do a piece of graphic on the cover of the box that has a visual image and has a fancy way of presenting your title, maybe a little image that goes with what that subject is about. And we'll take the cassette tapes and we'll stick them in these little boxes and we'll sell it in the box. So uh, there's no difference in the message. It's just we're going to put it in a different package. And so I said, okay. He says, believe me, I think we'll sell more. And I said, well, I just want to get the word out. You know, the people, and if that's what it's going to take, then okay. So we proceeded to do that. And there was a lot of teachings that I had that were a couple of tapes. And we got this little holder, little box that would hold one, two, three, and four tapes and, and so forth. And, um, and Ephraim in those days was doing the graphics, and he created the graphic that was on the outside for the packaging and so forth. And as soon as we started putting that out, you can't believe how many of those things sold. Now, the price had to get jacked up because we had to pay for additional materials and all the other stuff that went into it, which is purely, as far as I'm concerned, it was purely fluff. It was just packaging. It was just what you see. It, wasn't, it didn't change one bit of the principles of the truths that I had taught in those tapes. It didn't reinforce it. or It just was a label that people would see. And people would buy it and have an interest in it. They could sort through all the different things that were available, and they, oh, I want that, I, no, I need that, uh, based on the visual of what they saw with their eyes. And, it, and I suddenly discovered not only are they doing, I do the same thing. I, I make decisions on things, products I'm going to buy if I go to the grocery store. The label on the jar does affect my decision making more than the content cost you know whatever if the if i like the look of the label better sometimes i'll get that over over the other one um, and it's because in the natural order of things we use our eyes a lot to help us to do things you ever um, get up in the middle of the night and you can't really see very good and so you, as, and as a result of, you know, going to the bathroom or whatever you're doing, you stumble around, you know, because you can't see. And then with your eyesight, you can walk, you know, clearly. We rely on our eyes to walk. We rely on our eyes to make decisions about buying products or what the things that we desire or whatever. And here's the Torah saying, don't do that about spiritual stuff. Don't do that. Not the way it, it looks good. You know, you got to use a different criteria for your decisions. I love this, uh, the going about the walking thing. 
the Lord tells you that this scripture is a lamp under your feet. And what it's really saying is when you go to walk, walk based on what this shows you, not necessarily what your eyes show you. Don't stop using the physical to understand spiritual things. Use the spiritual things to understand those things correctly. Um, same thing on, on a, a food, a dish. You know, food is made, and we call it presentation of the dish. It's made to look very attractive and draw you to it. And I'm, I'm telling you, if, if they make it a very attractive looking dish, and it's still pork or shellfish. It, I don't care how good it looks. It's it, it, it's not food, and you shouldn't be eating it. I don't care if it is the most appealing looking. You're not supposed to eat that. So it's not based on sight. It's based on other things, um, and sight can work with it, but sight is not the sole determinant. So when it comes to discussions. Like, for example, with our friends, some of our church friends, when they're talking about specifically, well, I don't know, I don't know about doing this keeping the Torah thing. I don't know about this kosher thing. I don't know about Sabbath and things. You know, that's not the way I see it. Sight has nothing to do with it. Sight has nothing to do with it. What did the Lord say and what did you hear? And for a person to say, well, that's not the way I see it, he has to dismiss everything else that was coming into him. And, by the way, the reason I share this is not to find fault with them. I'm trying to make you wise unto something. If you're going to counter that, this is what you've got to do. Don't Stop trying to show them something and start sharing with them so that they can hear something if they can hear what the Lord has to say about it and get them to think about what the Lord has said, not necessarily what they're seeing. Um, some of my Messianic friends um, like to take the Passover, for example, and they want to do a big Passover Seder, and they want to invite uh, friends, neighbors, family members to come in and eat the Passover, and we'll show the Passover to them. And they'll get it. You know, hey, this thing is really about the Messiah and, and all this kind of stuff. That's nice, but that's not what the Passover is for. The Passover has never been purposed or intended to be an outreach to any community. The Passover is a feast that is reserved for the redeemed of the Lord. You're already supposed to be redeemed before you come to it. An unbeliever is not supposed to be permitted to come to a Passover. So stop using the things of the Lord to show somebody something. Stop trying to show off your knowledge of the Torah to another. Uh, stop trying to get other people to see the way you see it. That's not what's supposed to be happening. What is supposed to be happening is they hear what the Lord has said and they respond to the Lord. So that when I give the teaching of the Sabbath or the Passover, it's from the Lord, not from me, for them. Um, each 
Sabbath, when I go to teach, one of the things that I do in my own personal preparation is I always say, Lord, what do you, what do you want to tell the people? And there's a lot to teach in all those sections, but I'll ask the Lord, what do you want to emphasize, Lord? What do you, what do you want to share? Because you know the people, and you know what they need to do. I don't need to impress them with my knowledge of how, how I can survey the whole thing. What do, you, what do you want to say to them? Because then something wonderful will take place. Something wonderful will be accomplished. Their hearts will be changed. That this will be a real and substantive change for them. It's not some flash in the pan because it looked good. Um, but you do understand that we, even I, we all are subject to this, but the principle here is not to, not to follow after those things. We, we are impressed with things we see. And it affects us. And sometimes we think that we want to share that vision of that with somebody else, and we think that it'll have an effect on them. Well, vision does have an effect on them, but it's not, it's not the things that accomplishes spiritual things. It doesn't accomplish spiritual things. It's worldly things, and it's the things of the world. Um, that whole packaging of my products, that's a major part of what we do. We've gone from cassette tapes to CDs to DVDs. And you don't want to know why DVDs, why, why this broadcast works? Because it appeals to your eyes. Can I just tell you something right here in the midst of it? You need to be focusing in on what has the Lord said, not what you're seeing with your eyes. So that you can understand spiritual things which are beyond eyes. Uh, the sitsits that we wear. This is one of the other lessons on this same thing. Uh, the Lord told us to tie this tassel and attach it to the corners of our garment with the, with the idea in mind that you would not follow your eyes, which would go whoring after idols, but that you would remember to keep all the commandments of the Lord. So in this particular little macrame knot, which is a traditional Ashkenazic sitsit, um, we have eight strands. We have five knots. That totals 13. And the gematria for the word sitsit is 600. So 613 is a reminder to keep all 613 commandments. And to, when you see it, to remind yourself, don't follow your eyes. When you see it, remember what has the Lord said to remind yourself of that. It's the same thing. It's like tying a, you know, a, a knot or a string around your finger. It's to remind you of something. The string around your finger doesn't really do that much. And these, while they're decorative, they don't do anything. But the, the message that goes with them is what's important. And the same thing is true about stop worrying about how things look and start paying attention to what do they mean? And uh, what has the Lord said with regard to those things? The, uh, uh, in this particular uh, passage that I read to you from John, John is trying to say that the being able to discern between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error is that the spirit of error focuses on what you see and the spirit of truth focuses on what you hear. Again, going back to what Paul said this lesson, 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. It, faith does not come by sight. It's, 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 faith is things not seen, uh, the writer of Hebrews said. It's things not seen. But we have this tendency, um, and it's because God gave us physical eyes, and we have a tendency to follow them too much. We think that the path that should be forward is based on things we see. And uh, I have come to understand that the man who says, well, I don't see it that way, is a man who's not spiritually walking the way the Lord instructed him to walk. He's walking after the things of the world, and he's walking after his own heart, after his own discernment and his own judgment without relying on the Spirit of the Lord to render the judgment for him. It's a very powerful and very important lesson to learn. Um, the Torah has already struck has always struck me with um, certain very key principles that you have to get in your life. Again, going back to the purpose of the Torah is to show you and teach you how to make good judgments. Well, one of the ways that you learn how to make good judgments is don't get sucked in by what your eyes see. Go beyond what your eyes see. Um, in the case of, you know, don't believe a report except by the evidence of two or three. Um, there's key uh, principles the Torah teaches us so that we can render and make good judgments. Uh, let me tie this back around to our faith in the Messiah. Why do you believe, why do you believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah? Is that because somebody showed that to you? Does somebody show you a picture of this long hair, soft brown hair, looking Jesus with a little golden glow behind him, and is it, oh yeah, that's the Messiah. And on the basis of the picture, you went, oh yeah, that's, that's the way the Messiah should look. And yes, I believe he's the Messiah. Is it, are you doing it on the basis of what you see? On the testimony of the works of redemption that he did, and you understand those works of redemption. Are you doing and making the decision based on the multiple signs God laid out and that Yeshua fulfilled? Are you making a discernment and establishing the truth that way? Or are you doing it because, well, I'm a member of the church and that's what everybody believes, and so if I'm going to be a member of the church, I've got to do the same thing they do. Because I don't want to look different from them. That's crucial. That decision-making mechanism is crucial, not only in understanding our salvation and our redemption, but is, is profound in the implications of how we walk out our faith every day, how you lead your life, how you continue to operate with other people. Following those principles is what leads you to good success and your way is prosperous, which is, by the way, one of the blessings of the Lord that he tells us that will happen to us. Amen? All right, that's our portion for this week. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah, yeah.
you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying, Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing.